We're all learning to live with the new normal. This will be the new normal. Normal. system uses any excuse to clamp down on the people and the bodies that are under its control. You're listening to No New Normal, a special edition of CKET's Off the Hour. The series aims to unpack the questions raised by the COVID-19 outbreak, examining the rifts exposed by the pandemic, and the convergent struggles that are emerging in the aftermath of the quarantine. No New Normal broadcasts from Jojage, the unceded territory of the Anishinaabe and the Haudenosaunee nations. You can catch us here on CKUT 90.3 FM every other Friday at 5 p.m. I'm Athena Khalid with Emily Black, James Ward, and Gao Mahadevan. Stay tuned for our first episode, Lockdown, Prisoner Justice Under Quarantine. Since the murder of George Floyd by the Minneapolis Police Department in late May, calls to defund the police have gained significant ground. To some, this may seem like an extremist demand, but abolitionists from Angela Davis to Robin Maynard have been calling for the abolition of prisons and police for years. To many abolitionists, prisons and police, as branches of the carceral system, uphold the punitive, colonial, and racial capitalist nature of the state. Here in Montreal, there were weekly demonstrations following the murder of George Floyd, both in solidarity with the uprisings across the U.S. and in opposition to the SPVM's violence against Black and Indigenous people here in Montreal. On June 13th, protesters gathered outside of Bordeaux Prison, a provincial prison in a Hunsay-Cartierville, for a noise demonstration to call for the defunding of police and prisons, linking a series of noise demonstrations outside of prisons tied to abysmal conditions since the start of the pandemic, and the Black Lives Matter movement. Here's Kaya Schrouder, one of the event's co-organizers. The demonstration was to um, let the system know, um, the inmates and officers alike, that we are here fighting for the cause. Uh, We wanted to make as much noise as possible to let them know that Um, We will not go out quietly. We do see their injustices. We do see the things that they face. And we wanted them to know that um, we are working on change. Uh, The prison system, as we know it now, has done more harm than good. And we want to change that order. We're complaining because it happens. It's happening here in Montreal. And what we need to do is call to order the statistics of how many instances we have of police brutality against black men and women. And we can pull them up from years and years ago. I myself um, have resided in several all black neighborhoods. And if you were to come and take a, a sit in one of our parks, you'll see what I'm talking about. Children playing in the park and being harassed by police 
because they want to know if the bikes that they're riding, that they actually belong to them. Children. They're asking children questions in the park without their parents. And no one thinks that this is strange. When you see police doing things like this, we already know what's next. In a couple of years, after questioning them about those things for no reason, they'll then be beating them. They'll be putting their hands on them. They'll be slamming them to the floor. It's something that we see every day. So we want to defund that money. We want them to know that we will no longer be paying into that for our protection because we don't, we're obviously not getting any protection from them. We're only being abused by them. So what we want to do is we want to cut the funding and we want to see how they respond to us taking that money and putting it into the communities where they are having the most issues with crime in order to build up the people to keep them from offending. Therefore, we don't really need many police in our area anymore because we are handling and governing our own problems. Because we now have the money to fund certain structures to keep our children and our people out of trouble. People that go to jail feel like everyone on the outside has forgotten about them. They're being treated terribly in these prisons. Not only could they hear us, but we could hear them. They were saying some things over that fence that had us startled. They hadn't bathed in four days. They hadn't had communication with their families in over two weeks. These are the things that they were saying over that fence. We needed to make noise for them to let them know. You might not be able to have that, that quality of life in there, but we're here. We're not home in our cushy houses with our feet crossed on the couch. We're worried and we're here with you. As Kaya suggests, Black people are not only over-policed, but also incarcerated at disproportionate rates. Only 3.5% of so-called Canada's population is Black, but 75 of federal prisoners are Black. And 4% of the population is Indigenous, yet nearly 30% of people in federal prisons are Indigenous. Quebec doesn't release data on the racial composition of provincial prisons, but the trend is ostensibly similar. But the problem isn't just the disproportionate rates of incarceration. The problem wouldn't be solved by having a proportionate prison population. The carceral system itself is built to perpetuate the racial, colonial, and economic structure of the Canadian state. Contemporary policing and prisons stem from the state's attempt to protect private property, and in Canada and the States, to maintain the colonial order. The RCMP comes out of the Northwest Mounted Police, which helped build the Canadian Pacific Railway, forcibly removing Indigenous people in order to do so. The Northwest Mounted Police also played a central role in the creation of reserves, and the RCMP continued this legacy by bringing Indigenous children to residential schools. Into the 19th century, police in Canada often served to capture runaway slaves. So when we point to these statistics, we point to them to show that the carceral system is doing what it's built to do. Functionally, then, prisons are not just about punitive justice. But even if they were, our show is taking the approach that punishment is not an acceptable response to crime. We don't believe that someone should be subject to fear and degrading conditions, to strip searches and to malnutrition, to atone for whatever they've done wrong. And even if it were acceptable, high rates of recidivism show that this punitive approach just doesn't work. Conditions for prisoners are abysmal. Prisons like Leclerc in Laval, Bordeaux in Ahunsa-Cartierville, 
the Ottawa Carleton Detention Center, and so many others were already notorious for how terrible conditions were for people on the inside. And beyond that, essential services were sometimes non-existent. Other times, they were stretched thin. So, of course, a pandemic only made matters worse. In March, as COVID-19 was declared a public health emergency, activists warned against the potential for outbreaks in prisons, and many advocated for the release of prisoners, or decarceration. But the federal and provincial governments failed to release people incarcerated. Instead, lockdown has been imposed on those inside. And despite those measures, at least three prisons in Quebec have had substantial outbreaks. To describe the conditions in prisons, we have Cheryl, whose son is in a medium-security federal prison here in Quebec. Prisoners are not seeing their parole officers as often. Uh, They are not seeing therapists as often. Uh, My son was hoping to get moved to a different uh, setting, a a less lower security setting. Uh, The process was started before COVID. That has come to a halt. So he no longer knows if that application is even existing. But even more impact is found by the fact that no outside people are allowed in the prison at this time. So that means for nobody across Canada, are there any family visits? Church groups that came in and had meetings, uh, spiritual guidance, just being able to talk to prisoners so that they feel still connected to the community, gone. There's no visiting the library. That's gone. There's no gym time. Uh, There's the, it's just been increased now. Their outside time during the day has now gone up to two hours a day instead of one hour. But that still means they are in lockdown situation for 22 hours a day. Where my son is, the the garden, they they killed it all. All gone. So how you're supposed to be improving yourself is impossible. People who are coming up for parole and have to show they have done programs, the programs are all stopped. There are no programs. Uh, So how can you, you can't make parole if you haven't done your program, and if you're turned down for parole, it's another full year before you are allowed to apply again. If there's nobody there, if no staff has tested positive, if nobody in the prison has tested positive, why are they still not able to at least have a table in the area so they can sit and play chess or cards together? It was easy to say, We are putting all these in place to protect you from yourself. We're trying to keep you safe. But what has been done is way beyond what needed to be done. Surely letting the prisoners out more often would not have caused any problems. The inmates have been crowded into more people in a unit than usual so that there's there are whole units empty just in case there are people with covid 
so everybody else is sardined in, which increases chance of COVID uh, under the guise of protecting the inmates from getting ill. Well, it makes no sense to me. Um, I can only I can only guess that it is to make things more punitive because it doesn't make sense in any other in any any other line of thinking. I hate to think that that is the reason because yeah i I would still like to have faith in the system, but I cannot see any other way to justify what they are doing other than they want it to be punitive. The heat wave has been devastating to the health of men and women incarcerated in Canada. Uh, the Canadian prisons are all set up to have air conditioning. Uh, but again, part of the uh, Harper government tough on crime mandate, um, people didn't like the idea of thinking that prisoners had air conditioning. So that was all unplugged. But the heat, if you can imagine how hot it is when you can open windows and get a breeze at night, uh, if you're in an area that has no trees shading your home and your home is all made of concrete and you have a two inch thick mattress, which is vinyl, uh, you don't have air conditioning. You have a 10 inch plastic fan because that's all you're allowed to have. And family members have to purchase those for inmates. So there may be inmates who don't have those even. Uh, large industrial fans are turned on at night when everybody is locked in their cell and closed up and no breeze moves. You can imagine after a few days just how hot and horrible and miserable that is. Um, I have heard stories of prisoners getting fungus infections, uh, skin rashes, joint swelling, hand, extremity swelling from the heat. And there is no, there's no way for them to get out of that. The focus has been on COVID, um, but as you can tell, I think there's a whole lot of things that need to be addressed that COVID is just highlighting. The injustice and the nonsensical approach we have in Canada to incarceration. That was Cheryl describing the conditions in the medium security federal prison her son is currently in. But before we talk about COVID-19 prisons, I want to address the fact that this episode has no interviews with people on the inside. Since we started working on the episode, our priority was to get interviews with people currently incarcerated. Our two-week timeline was already too tight to be able to get on someone's call list, but even then, we had a couple potential interviews lined up. They all fell through because the people in question were dealing with more immediate crises, like trying to talk to their parole officers, 
dealing with the heat wave, coping with mental health issues while in conditions of near solitary confinement. And though I think the absence of these voices is in some sense a failure on our part, it's also telling. Prisons limit every aspect of the lives of those inside, to the point where it's nearly impossible to get their voices out on the outside. And that's especially the case during this pandemic. Here's a bit of my conversation with Yasmin from Prison Radio on the subject. One thing that I've kind of been having difficulty with with this episode, especially given the conditions um, right now and all the measures because of COVID-19, it's been really hard to get interviews with people on the inside, um, which I think kind of speaks to the conditions on the inside. Um, could you tell me a bit about what the process of getting interviews is like, if there are difficulties, and if those difficulties kind of point to what conditions are like? Sure. I think the 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 correctional system in Canada is quite draconian in their policies, especially around media. Um, like there's a lot of, um, I find it's often easier, like from a standpoint of having access to interviews with those on the inside from the United States. There's like prisonradio.org and they're a great organization. Noelle Hanrahan, she does a lot of interviews with like Mumia Abujamal and many people on the inside. Um, and so there's constantly um, pieces that we can air, which are, which is great because, like I said, we want to center the voices of prisoners on every show if, <clears throat> as much as possible. I find in Canada, though, it's a lot harder because it's a lot harder for media to access prisons. Um, the Canadian Correctional Services have a lot more restrictive rules around that. So um, usually it's the way we're able to have interviews it like it requires definitely a lot of um preparation so you have to be on a list of someone who's inside prison like the number for them to call you have to be approved um and that's a process that can take it's supposed to take a few days it can take a few weeks as i know because <laughs> i'm in that process right now um with someone on the inside so yeah, it's usually a lot, like a lot of coordination with friends, family members, partners, um, who are in like more regular touch with those on the inside, and then uh, that's how sometimes we're able to um, speak to many of the issues that are going on inside. So yeah, it's really it's really hard. It's not easy. That was Yasmin from Prison Radio. So when a public health emergency was declared on March thirteenth, what happened in prisons? Here's Sheena Hosko from the Anti-Carceral Group to tell us a bit more. Uh, my name is Sheena. Uh, I'm an anti-prison organizer, an abolitionist, a visual artist. Uh, I'm a member of a couple different collectives in Montreal, including the Anti-Carceral Group. And um, we are sort of like a public-facing group that focuses mostly on um, popular education, um, and before the pandemic, we met once a month uh, to learn, discuss, and act on prison justice issues. Um, and as COVID emerged, um, our work has changed um, to include um, organizing demonstrations. Um, some of us contribute to the site noprisons.ca um, and have been just... Um, doing work to support folks inside, to support families, uh, act in solidarity with folks inside, and also continue to do some popular education stuff around prison abolition specifically. As most folks are familiar, um, familiar with this, that it's really hard to socially distance um, indoors and specifically in a prison. Um, 
you're always very close to people. And plus you've got a ventilation system. So, you know, uh, most of the prison population got COVID. Um, the federal government was very, very slow to respond. Um, provincially, um, in other provinces, we've seen um, governments decarcerate on the provincial level. We didn't see decarceration provincially or federally in Quebec, unfortunately. Um, so folks were stuck inside in really bad conditions. Um, some ways uh, that institutions, specifically Federal Training Center, um, dealt with COVID is just to put people on lockdown. So they get 40, they got 45 minutes outside their cells a day. That includes to shower, that includes to make phone calls. Um, so those sorts of things also exasperate uh, mental health crises, not mental health crises, like those things cause um, harm towards people's mental health. And if folks are dealing uh, with mental illness, um, that'll exasperate that as well. The federal government didn't really step up for folks on the inside. Um, and that's in line with, you know, the carceral state in general, which um, puts in this tiered system where folks in prisons um, lives aren't uh, considered as valuable as other people's on the outside. So lockdown seems quite similar to solitary confinement, which the United Nations Committee Against Torture has deemed unacceptable. Here's Sheena comparing solitary confinement to the current conditions of lockdown. So Canada has... The, the provincial system, I mean, the federal system, there was recently directives to sort of um, change solitary confinement. Um, they said it was to sort of stop it, but it, it they've actually just changed its name, unfortunately. Um, so the practice is still used, um, like solitary confinement is still used um, in Canada. People are sent to the quote unquote hole. Um, there is, um, an institution near Archambault that is essentially like a solitary institution. And then there's spaces reserved in prisons for that as well. Um, in the context of COVID-19, a lockdown would consist in the federal system would consist of being confined to your cell or to your range or to your condo. People have different sort of in, uh, ways of living on the inside, depending on your security level. There's like max, medium, minimum. Uh, and then also halfway houses, houses we can't forget because a lot of people who were in halfway houses were actually confined to their halfway houses during COVID as well. So that just includes like, um, yeah, like you basically get meals brought to you um, and you have 40, an hour, 45 minutes to an hour out of every 24 outside your cell, like I said, to, to wash, um, to call people. Um, and then, so that's at the federal level. Provincially, um, like people when we're in Bordeaux were saying they hadn't had showers for two weeks, um, that they actually weren't, you know, they were on lockdown for more than 24 hours, more than 23 hours a day. So provincially it was kind of, um, the, the conditions were changing quite often. Um, and that, how could I say this? The changes to solitary confinement were at a federal level, um, whereas provincially, it's kind of a different system. So in Bordeaux, people were really talking about how it was a taking toll on their mental health, um, as well as folks uh, federally were talking about that as well. Um, and the side effects of solitary confinement can be many things. Um, it can 
like we said, exasperate or create uh, mental illness. Um, it affects people's eyesight. It ex- it uh, just have not seeing stuff. Um, it affects people's cognitive abilities. It affects people's speech. Um, it it really just it's it's a you know it's a form of torture according to uh, the UN. Um, you know, and in so-called Canada and most institutions across Turtle Island, it's a, it's a practice that's still um, used all the time. And would you say that it's too extreme to say that the lockdown conditions are kind of similar to solitary confinement? A lockdown is solitary confinement. When you're in solitary confinement, you do get time out of your cell every day as well. Um, so yeah, the conditions were the same as um, solitary confinement. That was Sheena from the Anti-Carceral Group. Here's Yasmin from Prison Radio with more information about conditions during the pandemic and the coverage that Prison Radio has been doing these past few months. My name's Yasmin. I've been working with Prison Radio for several years uh, while I was sort of in Montreal, then I left and went away. I've, wor- I've been working on the show, I believe, since 2013. Yeah, we really focus on issues that are impacting those inside. Um, and we often interview family members or advocates, people that are working to either improve the conditions of those inside or working to eradicate prison. So there's a lot of prison abolitionists that come on the show. Basically, that that prisoners um, didn't feel confident with the cleanliness of the prisons, that sometimes people that were inside were the ones responsible for cleaning and they weren't given proper cleaning supplies. Um, They weren't given proper protective gear. Um, In some prisons, there are reports of not even having enough hand soap. And then you have the Correctional Services Canada, when they're being asked about these things, either not making a statement or saying that they're following everything that, you know, that they're supposed to do all these health precautions for COVID. So, like, what they're saying and what they're doing is really divergent. Um, That's what I found. And I find it really infuriating because you're keeping these people inside, you're keeping them caged, and then you're not giving them a chance to actually even protect themselves as best as they could, which you should be letting them out. You're not letting them out. You're not giving them proper health care. You're not giving them proper protective gear. You're not keeping their, their where they live safe in terms of cleaning it properly. It's become really dire. Like it, Prisons were already a, a place of, of pain, suffering, and um, it's like torture keeping people caged in. Um, especially in Canada when you have the, the shoe, like the segregated housing which Canada claims it's abolishing, but they just keep changing the name. So there's that. And now we're having that. It seems like everyone's kind of on these conditions because there's not enough socializing. There's no not enough time outside. All those programming, all those things that make, I don't know, each day livable. None of their family members who normally would come visit them, their partners, their children, their parents, their friends, spouses, um, can come visit them because... The prisons are closed, basically. Well, pre-COVID, you know, people really look forward to having their family come visit them. That gives people something to look forward to. And when you're in a dire situation, having something to look forward to can really help you get through to the next day, right? So um, having not being able to have anyone visit you, and also for family members who I talk to of those inside, it's really, really hard. 
Um, they're constantly scared that their loved one is going to get sick with COVID and um, that they are not going to get to see them because they haven't been able to see them because they've been closing everything. So that's another big piece. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of people that, like the uh, one, I think the gentleman who died in Quebec, he was elderly. He should have been treated um, for his health ailments in a different way. Um, shouldn't have been kept, uh, like they should have been released. There's a lot of people inside that are elderly. There's a lot of people inside with underlying health conditions, right? And there's a lot of people inside suffering from mental health uh, conditions as well. So when you compact and layer all these things, uh, it's just, it just sounds unbearable. I'm not sure what other word to use. Um, it sounds miserable. That was Yasmin from Prison Radio. So lockdown in federal and provincial prisons in Quebec is functionally solitary confinement. But as Cheryl said earlier, in prisons where there aren't any cases, lockdown doesn't make any sense. If there are no cases, surely the people coming in and out should be tested. But because the priority was putting prisoners in lockdown rather than making sure COVID-19 wasn't brought into prisons, there were outbreaks nonetheless. And once COVID-19 was inside a prison, the priority could then be containing the virus and treating those who contracted it, while still ensuring some quality of life for the rest of the prisoners, but that seems to be far from the case. Let's take the Federal Training Center, Bordeaux Prison, and the Joliet Institution for Women, three prisons in Quebec with significant outbreaks, as our case studies. The Federal Training Center, or FTC, is a federal prison in Laval that consists of one minimum security building and one mixed security building. To clarify, federal prisons are prisons where people are sent with sentences of two years and a day or longer. At FTC, the mixed security building, which housed two wings reserved for Inuit men, was swept with COVID-19. According to CTV News, of the 342 inmates tested by late May, 40% of them tested positive. In other words, there were 162 positive cases, making the outbreak at FTC the biggest outbreak in a prison in so-called Canada. The second incarcerated person to die in Canada of COVID-19 was someone at FTC on May 3rd. The details of his identity have not been released, but one of the few details that we do know is that he was Inuit. According to NoPrisons.ca, COVID-19 was introduced at FTC by staff. The reporting done by NoPrisons.ca suggests that Correctional Services Canada and the federal government did not take adequate steps to prevent the spread of COVID-19 in the prison. Instead of ensuring space for physical distancing and that there were sufficient sanitary supplies, the government locked down the prison. At FTC, people have been under full lockdown since April 15th, which means that they have had access to one 10-minute phone call per day and 30 minutes of yard time, leaving people in their cells for over 23 hours per day. Late April and early May seem to have been the peak of the outbreak at FTC, and allegedly non-COVID ranges have been allowed to open up, but the details of what that actually looks like for people on the inside remains unclear. Visits continue to be cancelled, and inmates still don't have access to proper protective gear or sanitizing equipment. Bordeaux Prison is another prison that's had a major COVID outbreak. Bordeaux is a provincial prison in a Hunsic-Cartierville, which means that people housed there are either serving sentences shorter than two years, are awaiting trial, or can't afford bail. At least 60 people were infected with COVID-19 by mid-May, and one person, Robert Langevin, died on May 19th. In the wake of Langevin's death, 
Quebec Public Security Minister Jean-Viev Guibault said, of course we cannot avoid all cases because those are close living quarters. Here's Sheena again from the anti-carceral group on the conditions in Bordeaux. We're going to Bordeaux for a noise demonstration. Um, that's the, like I said, the provincial prison. Hit hard by COVID. Um, conditions are pretty rough on the inside. The infrastructure is really garbage. Um, people didn't have access to proper PPE. Cases have gone down, um, but conditions are still pretty rough inside. Folks in Bordeaux actually went on a hunger strike for a few days, uh, for about a week, to get access um, to better um, PPE, to get access to telephones, to get access to just sort of basics of human dignity. Uh, someone who was inside named Robert Langevin actually passed away um, from COVID. He was uh, in his 70s and he had actually filed a complaint um, a couple weeks before he passed saying that he was super sick and that he wasn't being taken care of and um, he ended up passing away. Um, so it's pretty, it's pretty horrible in there. The hunger strike that Sheena mentioned started on May 5th. By May 8th, it had spread to at least four sectors of the prison. The hunger strike ended in phases from May 10th to 16th, but there are reports of other acts of resistance from those on the inside, and the demands of the prisoners remained. The demands, as reported by noprisons.ca, are as follows. To provide prisoners with masks and hand sanitizers. To ensure that prison staff wear their masks and gloves at all times. To ensure proper sanitation of cells and common spaces. To provide prisoners with information about COVID-19 infections and testing at Bordeaux. To test all prisoners and prison staff for COVID-19 immediately and continually. To expand access to medical release and to provide expedited bail hearings. And to end 24-hour lockdown for prisoners who do not have COVID-19. These demands have not been met. Here is a section from an open letter penned by people at Bordeaux on May 24th. The prisoners are afraid. Afraid of the coming summer, which promises to be hot. A summer in a concrete cell without air conditioning or a fan. Afraid to say we are sick, as this will mean being locked up for several days. Fear of catching and dying from the coronavirus. We still have no access to the infirmary, the library, or visits. And so far, as of May 24th, we have still not had the right to clean ourselves for two months. All of this, I am sure is against public health recommendations. It is impossible to file complaints here. The guards systemically tear up the complaint forms because the only right that is respected here is the right to remain silent and the law of a murder. According to the Canadian Constitution and the laws of Quebec, we are innocent until proven guilty, so I don't understand why we are forced to live in these conditions. Even those who have been found guilty, do they not have a right to respectable conditions of detention? The Bordeaux prison is populated by people awaiting trial and people who are serving light sentences. When you see the prison from the outside, you might imagine it is filled with criminals and thugs, but here inside there are fathers, sons, and husbands. Some have made mistakes, but I believe that no one should live in these conditions. The third institution that we wanted to look at is the Joliet Institution for Women, a federal penitentiary in Joliet. Joël Boulieu, a member of the Ojibwe Nation who is incarcerated at Joliet, has filed a class action lawsuit against Correctional Services Canada, saying the CSC failed in their duty to protect vulnerable inmates from the spread of COVID-19. Boulieu believes that she was patient zero in the outbreak at Joliet, where more than half of the facility's 82 residents were infected. 
In the claim, Beaulieu alleges that she was forced to clean high-traffic common areas wearing only gloves, and numerous requests for masks and additional protective equipment were turned down. When she started showing symptoms, she was sent back to her unit. She was told by a prison nurse that she couldn't have COVID-19 as she hadn't traveled. Beaulieu was only tested for COVID-19 after a week of symptoms, and during that week, she was moved units several times. Once her test came back positive, she was confined to her cell for all but 15 minutes a day, and her requests to speak to an Ojibwe elder or to a mental health professional were denied. As I mentioned, the second incarcerated person to die of COVID-19 was Inuit. And Joëlle Beaulieu, who alleges she was patient zero at Joliette, is Ojibwe. As discussed at the start of the episode, Indigenous people are dramatically overrepresented in prisons. With regards to the overrepresentation of Inuit people in prisons in the South, Benson Cowan, the CEO of Nunavut Legal Aid, suggests that Inuit people are not only subject to criminal proceedings at higher rates than the rest of the population, but that they're more likely to be convicted. And once convicted, they're more likely to go to jail with longer sentences and tend to serve their sentences longer. In the case of early release, the requirements for parole, such as housing, securing employment, etc., are particularly difficult to ascertain for incarcerated Inuit people in prisons in the South. Beyond that, Inuit people are disproportionately likely to have underlying health issues due to the lack of health services in the North. As a result, COVID-19 has disproportionately affected incarcerated Indigenous people. So given the overrepresentation of indigenous people in prisons, and given that prisons are the punitive arm of the colonial state, it's hard to deny their function as a continued colonial institution. And again, the same can be said of the overpolicing and overincarceration of black people. It's hard to come to any other conclusion than that prisons uphold racial capitalism. Since the beginning of the pandemic, many have been calling for decarceration to prevent potential outbreaks in prisons. Here's Sheena again from the anti-carceral group. The Termite Collective, which is another abolitionist group in Montreal, released a set of demands um, very early in the pandemic, um, basically calling for decarceration. It was pretty clear at the beginning of the pandemic that for public health, and when we talk about public health, we have to include prisoners as part of the public, um, the real way to take care of people's safety would be decarceration. It just didn't happen. Um, so the federal and provincial governments knew this very early on. And, you know, Bill Blair, public safety minister, at the, at the beginning, Trudeau kind of made some comments too in this vague way, was like, we're thinking about it, we're thinking about it. But the decarceration just didn't happen. So if, if prisons are ostensibly these places that the state uses to keep the public safe if we consider prisoners part of the public as we should they failed to follow their own mandate whereas as the prisons became unsafe places um, under COVID-19 um, keeping in mind that they're always very unsafe um, healthcare inside is no notoriously abysmal um, we were hearing stories of people who were scared to get tested um, because they were scared to get positive because they didn't want to be brought to, they didn't want to have to be brought to either the, the hospital inside the hospital, the area that was used to treat you uh, inside the prison or to the prison hospitals, which exist as well, because they don't trust the care uh, that is being provided. So um, 
yeah, the state just failed to actually follow its own advice, which is decarceration and having people be able to go back to their communities and families to stay safe um, was the way to deal with this. Um, because we know on the inside, you can't socially distance. Um, the guards were the ones bringing stuff inside. They didn't take uh, adequate preventative measures. Um, and I think for folks um, who spend time inside or who know folks who've been inside who do organizing, this is just par for course um, with how the institutions operate um, because they, at the end of the day, the prison system doesn't truly value uh, human life. Um, we know that approximately 30% of folks on the inside federally are indigenous, approximately 9% are black folks. Um, approx I'm not sure the numbers, but a large amount of people living with mental illness, um, a lot of folks who um, come from precarious financial situations living in poverty. Um, you know, and as Angela Davis has always said, like, prisons are used, paraphrasing terribly, but prisons are a way to sort of um, hide areas of society that the state doesn't um, want to deal with. Um, so I think in the COVID response, we can see that enacted in a very, very, very um, tangible way. I think um, as an abolitionist, for me, decarceration um, is the way to deal with this situation. Um, for sure, you know, I have friends inside, I wanna make sure they're safe and supporting them and making sure they can stay safe as well um, as much as possible. And it, I don't believe in quote unquote better prisons. I don't believe in prison reform. Um, I think as part of our work as abolitionists, it is, is to get people out of prison you know, and for sure, for folks who are in there, make sure they're able to stay safe as much as possible. But um, the state will never truly keep anyone safe because um, there's their punitive systems. Um, there's systems that are built literally as an extension of colonization and slavery. So they've never been institutions that would act in any other way. Um, despite with how they frame their work, um, you know, and we have to be mindful of, you know, like CSE has restorative justice programs. CSE talks about rehabilitation, but that's all they do is they talk about it. And in practice, um, those things are extremely, extremely far from the truth. Um, so to take care of quote unquote public health and to take care of people um, it would be to decarcerate and abolish. That was Sheena from the Anticarceral Group. But even in Ontario, where there was some degree of decarceration at the beginning of the pandemic, jails started to fill back up almost immediately. Here's Sukhail Bensleyman from the Jail Accountability and Information Line, a community-based organization that works with people at the Ottawa Carleton Detention Centre to fight against the cohort conditions at that prison. We'll start with the lockdown. So in the beginning of COVID, with the uh, uh, with the work stoppages and the uh, pressure tactics by the unions and the guard, basically, like obviously, people went into lockdowns because of that. So that's one example of what you were saying. Uh, the other example is that people are not allowed to to have visits because of a health crisis, or uh, you know, uh, you know, people have been deprived even from uh, seeing their families behind the glass. The visits at OCDC 
happened behind the glass anyway through a phone, you know? So there is no reason why they should stop, you know, those visits. There is no reason, you know, it's illogical. So, but however, they, you know, take the opportunity that it's COVID, like the, the COVID-19 opportunity and they clamp down on people and they make their life even worse uh, while inside. The system itself uh, must be uh, challenged fundamentally and changed, but they could have done stuff differently. You know, like I was talking earlier about some harm reduction, uh, you know, while we are waiting for the complete obliteration of, uh, of, 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 uh, of carcerality or prisons, police, cops, uh, you know, any colonial, uh, you know, and racial capital system. But, you know, they could have done many things different. Like, for example, I spoke a little bit really briefly about how there were, like, a lot of people who had short sentences, you know, like they were sentenced to uh, six months or they had, like, six months left or four months left or a couple of weeks left, you know? Um, you know, the the, 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 the Ministry of Solicitor General didn't do nothing about those. They did not, uh, you know, uh, for example, uh, implement like a task force or, uh, you know, a, a board that would like look at review uh, cases on an urgent basis and uh, release uh, people, as many people as we can. You know what I mean? Those things have to be done like even before COVID-19, but, you know, even you know, within the context of COVID-19, you know, they could have done that, right? But they didn't do it. You know, they just said, hey, you know, we're going to sit back and wait. They didn't even disclose how many people they're testing or nothing like that. They, so yeah, they clamped down on, on, on prisoners. And, you know, the system is doing what it does best. I believe that we can't do uh, uh, much about it to change it fundamentally unless we move away from punishment and criminalization as a way to respond to, to social and, and interpersonal harm. The response to COVID-19 makes it pretty clear that the carceral system is exclusively interested in punitive approaches to any problems on the inside, rather than testing guards or releasing inmates or providing adequate supplies. People inside have been put under lockdown for nearly two months. The carceral system can only respond to crises in punitive terms, because the system itself is ultimately premised on punitive justice. And given that, the limits of reform seem quite clear. Instead of changing how prisons do what they do, prison abolitionists call for us to find ways to replace the carceral system altogether. We started this episode talking about the now mainstream calls to defund the police. Here's Sheena again. You would kind of mentioned the link between prison abolition and what has become a more mainstream call for defunding the police um, since the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis um, by the police there. I guess I was wondering if you could kind of um, expand on the link between those two calls. Yeah, I think um, the links exist um, in a lot of different ways. Um, I think it's really, really amazing to see um, the, like you're saying, pretty mainstream calls for defunding the police that are happening across Turtle Island um, with like police killings happening in the USA and also in so-called Canada and just like all the amazing uprisings that are happening. It's like a pretty radical time in some ways. Um, I hope that when people think of defunding the police, that they continue that thinking to include abolishing the police and they continue that thinking to include abolishing prisons. Because at the end of the day, the police, the legal system, prisons are part of the carceral web and we can't really separate any of them. 
So when we call for defunding the police, it's not that they have a smaller budget and then they still exist. The idea is to defund completely. Um, and there's obviously some amazing interviews and writing uh, currently happening um, by people like Robin Maynard, Mariam Kaba, uh, Rosie Wilson Gilmore um, of, you know, long-term prison abolitionists and community organizers, um, long-term anti-racist black thinkers that I think we should look to, um, to sort of understand the history of this work. Um, and also, you know, it's Canada day, quote unquote, that we're talking and also thinking too of how indigenous folks in so-called Canada have always resisted the state and we can like that to an abolitionist movement, especially in light of like the constant police killings of indigenous folks in this country. Um, so when we say defund the police, I hope people here abolish the police and abolish prisons. And I guess if you could tell me a bit about what the abolition of police and prisons would look like, what kind of a world that those things would look like? Super good question. I don't know. <laughs> and that's great. Um, I think that this time right now, there's so many amazing people, organizations, artists doing work around this, um, not only around what needs to stop, but also what needs, you know, what we need to end, but also what we need to begin. You know, it comes down to basic questions like, who do we care for? How do we care for them? Right. And when harm happens in our world, how do we respond? Be it on an interpersonal level or be it on a community level. So I can't say what a world without police or a world without prisons will look like because we're not there right now. But I can say that abolition isn't something that is going to happen one day because it's way on the horizon, but it is something like an abolitionist practice is already happening, right? It's when, you know, you see your neighbor in a mental health crisis and you don't call the cops. You maybe call some friends and go see what's up, you know, and be like, hey, how's it going? Looks like you're having a hard time. Can I help you with something? Is there someone I can call? And that is an abolitionist politic. It really is in an interaction on our day to day and not just, you know, dismantling a building. We started this episode talking about the now mainstream calls to defund the police. Here's Suhail Bensleyman. For me, uh, it is about, uh, you know, providing the conditions that will uh, allow for abolition, right? So providing the conditions, uh, what, what, what does that can mean? So it, for different communities, it can mean different things, you know what I mean? So for communities who are uh, struggling with uh, intergenerational trauma, uh, poverty, racism, you know, for maybe these communities, the solution will be to, you know, to dismantle these structures like racism, to move past uh, capitalism, uh, and, 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 and that, that way we, we don't have uh, people who are rich because other people are impoverished and, and, and killed, um, you know, and moving away uh, and, and from, from the harmful, from colonialism. So uh, maybe, you know, thinking about ways in which we can restructure society uh, that, that would allow us uh, to um, you know, to to uh, to not reproduce the harm. Uh, for me, abolitionism is the state taking a back seat a little bit, 
because as if to, as as if uh, as if today the only role of the state that I see is to control people and to assert its sovereignty over uh, you know the land uh, over borders and stuff like that. Abolitionist futures for me are futures in which we deal with harm and conflict in ways that are not uh, that are not coercive. Uh, without violence, without the use of violence, uh, and, 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 and without perpetuating the same uh, violence that we claim to resolve. Abolitionism is like the total reconfiguration of interaction uh, between human beings. So abolition is a constructive project, one that is about finding different ways of dealing with problems that are currently addressed by prisons and police. To some extent, This does require us to imagine new solutions that can address problems specific to certain communities or to certain places. But in another sense, we already know how to live without police and prisons. Like Sheena says, it's about checking in on people and building community. And like Suhail says, it's about solving problems of racial and economic injustice rather than just warehousing those who have been most directly impacted by that injustice. There are other ways of organizing society than through the threat of incarceration and police violence. Abolition is, in the case of COVID-19, the decarceration of people who have committed nonviolent crimes. Abolition is the decriminalization of drugs. And abolition is also the building of autonomous communities, communities that have the capacity to deal internally with problems as they arise. As we discussed at the start of this episode, there have been a series of noise demonstrations outside of prisons to show solidarity with those dealing with lockdown conditions on the inside. There's a demonstration this Sunday, July 5th, organized by the anti-carceral group. This demonstration is outside of Bordeaux prison, and the meeting point is Parc de la Marcy, on 901 Boulevard Gouin West. Here's Sheena talking about the actions that have taken place since March. Um, I think when COVID emerged, um, there was lots of mobilizing across so-called Canada from different uh, abolitionist groups, prison justice groups, And one of the things that emerged um, was these caravans to institutions. Um, Solidarity cross borders um, with folks inside the Laval Immigration Detention Center began doing caravans to the detention center because everyone was under lockdown. Um, Doing demonstrations in cars uh, was a way to show solidarity with folks on the inside by making noise, by letting them know we're there. So anti-carceral group participated in some of the caravans organized by Solidarity Across Borders and then also um, organized some of our own going to Laval. Um, if folks aren't familiar, there are four institutions in Laval. Um, there's the Immigration Detention Center. There's the Federal Training Center, which is actually two institutions, which is a men's federal institution. Uh, one minimum, one multi-level, and there's Leclerc, which is the women's provincial institution. So we did a couple caravans out there to let folks know um, that they, we know they're inside, we know stuff's tough in there, um, and to know that you know folks haven't forgotten them. Um, specifically in the federal training center, the multi-level um, had the highest rate of COVID in so-called Canada, with um, a hundred and 67 cases, I do believe, uh, and one person passed away of COVID, uh, to go to Bordeaux, which is the provincial, men's provincial prison on um, Gouin. Uh, and we've been going there a lot in tandem with um, 
organizers in tandem with family of people who have been inside in tandem with folks who have been outside to again make noise and also draw links between things like policing police abolition defunding the police prison abolition um because there is sort of this pretty strong movement towards thinking of abolition in a very practical way now. And the caravans um, and the demos are a way to sort of show up for people and put that thinking in practice. You've been listening to No New Normal, a special edition of CKUT's Off the Hour. No New Normal examines the structural rifts laid bare by the COVID-19 pandemic and the convergent struggles that have come as a result. Today's episode was locked down Prisoner Justice Under Quarantine. I'm Athena Khalid, with Emily Black, James Ward, and Gao Mahadevan. Thanks to Spencer Gilly for support, and to Sasha Kay for the theme. Thanks as well to Kaya, Cheryl, Sheena, Yasmin, and Suhail for taking the time to talk to us. Tune in on Friday, July 17th at 5pm for our next episode on COVID-19 and migrants. <laughs>